0: Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. Today, you're going to listen to a conversation I had with Anthony Martini, who is the CEO of Royalty Exchange, a marketplace where buyers and sellers can trade music, rights, and copyright. This is a booming time in a hot market for royalties, and it's a great time to have this conversation, too. There's been so many artists that have been selling their catalogs for big numbers. There's been a lot of music investment funds that have been buying up these catalogs, and big major publishing companies have been buying them up too. There's a few things that are driving this. First off, Interest rates are low, so it's cheaper than ever to borrow money. Second, streaming and the streaming era gives us better data on consumption. We can go back and see how well certain songs perform and predict their performance moving forward. And it was very hard to do this. It was almost impossible in the CD era and any of the other times before. But third, this is a non-correlated asset, and this is a very hot time in general for alternative asset classes. People are trying to find other things to put their money in, and when the economy's booming people listen to music. And when there's a recession, people listen to music. That's one thing that's consistent. And that is what's attracted a lot of investors to this space. But it's not just these big funds that are raising billions of dollars that can get involved. Royalty exchange makes it easier for A, the artists that aren't superstars to be able to use the platform to get money for things, but still maintain the ownership of what they have moving forward. But it also gives an opportunity for retail investors to get involved too and be able to participate in the funding opportunities and what's happening here. In this chat, Ant and I talk all about his decision to become CEO and what it's been like working. He recently became CEO in March of 2021. We talk about how these big major catalog sales have impacted the deal flow that he's seen on Royalty Exchange. We also talked about some of the overlooked investment opportunities too. What are some of the areas that people may not be realizing or what are some of the opportunities there? And we also talked about NFTs. Royalty Exchange recently launched the opportunity for artists to sell their rights and sell their copyright as NFTs and some of the more creative opportunities that can hold and how that can really open up the platform for so much more. And then we talked about Ant's background as well. He ran an independent record label called Commission. He had managed and worked with artists like Taiga, Lil Dicky, IDK, Made in Tokyo. And I think so much of his experience there and doing what he can to support the artist and understanding how this industry works informs a lot of his work at Royalty Exchange, too. So it was a great 360 conversation there. And Ant is a former artist, too. He gets this. And it's great to be able to just talk full circle about everything. Here's my conversation with Aunt Martini. We got Anthony Martini here, who's the CEO of Royalty Exchange. And it's an exciting time to be talking to you. I feel like you joined this company, you became CEO, and this royalty market is blowing up right now. How does it feel?
1: It feels great. I like to think I had a little part in Things heating up, so you know it definitely feels great. It's interesting because I think in the past there was almost a stigma on like selling your catalog or selling publishing or anything like that, where the perception has totally shifted. I feel like in the past even year or so, you know, partly because you see the headlines of Bob Dylan sells his catalog three hundred million, all these huge catalog deals, and then I, I think some of the other artists they just start looking around like, how do I get in on that and it's been an interesting time, I think, but also between you know, COVID hitting and the pandemic shutting down touring, it just became a way a lot of artists and creatives were looking for other ways to keep income coming in and, and we happened to be there at the right time, so.
0: Yeah, and I think with you specifically, you are realizing that yeah, there's all these headlines of what the superstars have done or the biggest artists, but no, there is an opportunity for the people who aren't superstars to still cash in on this moment. So that's where I feel like the sweet spot is in a lot of ways for what royalty stage is doing, and I'm sure a lot of that's relevant for what you've done in your career as well. Yeah, up to this point.
1: point, hundred percent. That really is the, the the mission statement. Really, you know, it's kind of like the superstar artists and producers, they're good already. They're rich. They're making money. They have huge record deals, pub deals, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's a whole class of musicians that are below that middle and lower tier that they might be making a living and maybe some are making a better living than others, but they're still not able to, you know, go buy a house or buy a car because they can't get approved for a loan because it's an unorthodox type of business that they're in, you know. So there's all sorts of, you know, obstacles, I think, for these mid-tier creatives that no one's really offering them a solution. And, and you know, also when you look at hit records, there's like five to 10 writers on every hit record, right? So it's like not all of them are the superstars. So, so like these other like working class musicians are just as important to the, you know, the whole economy of hits as the superstars, but they're not always the ones to benefit. And so we, uh, we like to be that platform that allows them to get some financial stability and empower them that way through, you know, the IP. It's like they they're creating these ideas, this IP. They should be able to leverage that. It's obviously valuable if the the superstars are getting the deals, people are paying a lot of money for these deals. So it's valuable. The writers and and artists have a small piece of that also, you know, benefit. That's where our sweet spot is, yeah.
0: And how has this movement impacted the sweet spot specifically for you all? Of course, we're seeing the dollar amounts and people are following what the large music investment funds are doing. But for you all, how has the business of royalty exchange been impacted? I'm sure it's grown, but any stats you can share on just how much impact it's been?
1: Yeah, we've definitely grown. I want to say, you know, we're probably up almost 50% 50% in the last year just from the prior year and in terms of even like engagement, signups, investors signing up for the platform, and then also artists coming in and inquiring about doing deals, there is nuance to what we do where it really is a benefit. I see the differences in what we do as a benefit, but some people kind of don't understand they, they lump all these kind of deals in the same pot, but they're, they're different where Royalty Exchange, we are not the ones buying the catalog. We're simply a platform that connects the investors with the artists that are looking to do deals. And we have more investors on our platform than anyone in the world. We have over 30,000 investors. And then also the, another difference is there's no sale of your catalog. You don't give up IP. It's, it's really almost like leasing your royalties. And so the benefit there is, okay, say you're a young artist and you, know, you wanna take some money off the table now, do a deal, then you get it back 10 or 30 years from now, then you could go sell it again for good or do whatever you want at that point. But it really is about giving you options. And again, we are the platform that just kind of connects the people that are looking to make deals.
0: That's interesting that people are grouping you with Hypnosis or Roundhill or some of these bigger investment funds because it's a completely different thing. They are investment funds, you are a marketplace. But I'm sure that people are just probably grouping everything related to this ecosystem in one thing.
1: I mean, it's a complicated space, you know, like publishing and royalties and rights, you know, like it's purposely complicated in in the music business because the big major labels and major publishers don't really want the artists to understand (laughs) like what they're signing half the time. So it's purposely complicated and it's outdated. But so there's a lot of misconceptions out there. But, um, yeah, again, being the marketplace and being the platform that is empowering all this, we're actually aligned with the artists. Wants and needs, as opposed to being on the other side of the table, where it's like we're negotiating against each other. I'm trying to get the best deal, even though hypnosis and Roundhill, everyone's paying fucking crazy money. They're paying crazy money for a reason because they're going to make crazy money off. So, like, you got to think if they're willing to pay me three hundred thousand, I wonder what they're going to make on this. You know, when they go down, when it increases the valuation of their company, and you know all this kind of shit. We are on the side of the artists of let's get you the most money possible. Let's maximize the value of your work. And we do that through a marketplace because it's transparent. You know, when you go into an auction scenario, investors are bidding against each other. So it's gonna, the highest price is gonna win. So we always wanna achieve that for the artist. We're not like trying to hold back anything. We want you to get the most money you can get.
0: Makes sense. And I'm curious what it's like on the artist side, especially for some of the younger artists, because I think that the narrative for royalties itself is that The catalogs that tend to be more valuable are the ones that are older, right? Like they have that longer consistency. But for some of the younger artists, especially in the streaming era, it can be harder to have those five, 10 years of proof point. So what are those conversations like? I can imagine that's very different from, let's say, a legacy artist from the 2000s or or the 90s coming to talk to you.
1: hundred percent. So that's where, you know, the whole multiple sort of uh, measuring stick comes into play. And you know, everyone's always so interested like, oh, what kind of multiple are you going to get me? Because that's what has been put out in the media. Like, this is what you need to look at. This is the fact of the multiple. It's not really like we invented a uh, metric called dollar age, which is how we sort of judge, you know, where you are in your, in your catalog because you're right. The newer the catalog, there's still going to be a decline. You know, you have to factor all that stuff in. If you just made a hit last year, that was like... You know, number one on the charts, all this shit. Yeah, last year you made a shit ton of money, so we can't base this deal on just last year's performance because it's gonna probably be half next year, half after that, half, the, and then then it kind of levels off. And so that's what fucks up the multiples. If you look at just the overall amount of money and say like, well, what can I do with this, or the time value of the money, it's less about a multiple conversation. It's more about like, what are your motivations? Like, what do you need the money for? And and we've had plenty of potential deals where it's been younger producers or younger artists where we've told them to wait. Like, listen, this is only two and a half years old. Like, wait another six months and come back and we're going to probably be able to get you a better price because the data is, is there and we can factor it in a, a little more accurately. But everyone has different reasons for why they want to do a deal. But if we don't think it's going to be a good deal for them at that time, we'll, we'll actually tell people just wait a little longer because you'll get a better deal. But yeah, the multiple metric is is really what kind of skews all these conversations because again, people look at the things they see in the, in the news and it's yeah, like you're getting 25 time multiple, but this is on a 40 year old catalog, like there's no decline happening anymore and, and now you're buying it for life. So even if it is a 30 time multiple, after 31 years, you've made your money back. So it's, it's kind of just a long play. But, you know, you're not going to see that with a younger artist because it's still going to continue to decline, even with like rising streaming rates and all that shit. So, you know, we try and that's part of what we do in our valuation process is trying to educate the creative as well as the investors. So like, we'll you know, you come to us. I want to do a deal. Okay. Give us access to your statements, whatever you want to put into the deal. We'll analyze it. We'll go create a deck for you. We just try and arm both sides with as much data as possible so they, they make the best well-informed decision. And you know, we'll just we'll walk you through each step of like, here's your top songs, here's the sources, here's what it's earned over the past few years, here's what we think it's going to earn. And then we'll give you a price of what we think based on the data of over a thousand deals that we've done, what investors will pay. And then as an artist, if you are on board with that, we, we move forward and get it in the system.
0: The other tough thing too about the multiples and the whole comparison with that is the buyers and the investors aren't always the same. Selling to a passive investor that's going to be chilling on it, whether it's a pension fund or someone looking to diversify their portfolio is very different from someone that's going to maximize this asset and try to get sync placements and try to do all these other things.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously you, uh, you're pretty well versed in this space, so you know the difference on that. But like, yeah, a lot of our investors are they're just passive investors that are looking for a steady yield or just to diversify their portfolios. And you know, the thing is, music royalties have become really attractive because they're not correlated to any market, you know, like what well, anything could be happening in the world. You could have stock own all types of stocks in these blue chip companies and you know the economy goes to shit and now you lose a bunch of money. That's not really going to happen with music royalties because it's not tied to a market like that. And people are going to, as long as music is streaming and people are consuming it, which they they will, even through, you know, as we saw, even through a pandemic, like it doesn't affect royalty pricing. So, you know, it's become a, an attractive asset for investors to just park their money in.
0: Definitely. One thing that I've heard from people, especially on the investing side, is some hesitancy with hip-hop. And I want to know what you think about this because it seems as if because of sampling and lack of radio play and some of the legal challenges that some investors are a bit more hesitant with hip-hop catalogs as opposed to classic rock or pop, even if they're around the same age. What's your take on that and what have you seen on royalty exchange?
1: No, we we love hip hop. (laughs) Honestly, like I'd say, probably eighty to eighty five percent of our deals are hip hop, you know, based whether it's the producer, writer, artist, and you know, as far as like radio, any of that. Like to me, I mean, hip hop from a streaming perspective, that is proven to be even more consistent than rock or any of these other genres. You know, like hip hop is the dominant genre, so every investor that we have in our system is very bullish on, on hip hop. And, you know, sometimes they don't even know the artists and they just, you know, like it's like some old, you know, guy in like Ohio who has a bunch of money and wants to, you know, he's loves this space. And then we put up like an NBA young boy song and he fucking buys it right away. And it's like, does he know it? Like, I, sometimes I wonder, like, as going and researching and, like, listening to the songs and be like, oh, this is cool. You know, and they tell their kids, like, I bought a piece of this NBA Youngboy song. You know, like, it's it's funny, but, like, we see those kind of uh, assets because, you know, people, they get snatched up quick.
0: Mm. There was that one story this reminds me of. There was some investor in Texas that had bought Cardi B's Bodak Yellow or he bought a slice of it, had no idea who she was at all. Yeah. Yeah. But that,
1: a lot of times... It is a strictly financial play for some of these investors. So they just they're looking at the data and they're like, okay, some of them may know the song, some of them may not. But yeah, there's there's definitely we have investors that have no idea what they're what they're buying sometimes. They just they see the data and they say, Oh, this is a good investment. And then a song like Borac Yellow fucking takes off and they they make out.
0: Has the profile of investors changed at all since this boom has been happening? Because from my take, I could see a path where there's more investors, like we're saying, that care less about the music, but care more about the investment opportunity that have been moving with this rush, maybe relative to the folks that were big on royalty exchange before the past couple of years.
1: Actually, like I've seen, I mean, more recently, I've seen a different type of investor coming in on board with like the rise of platforms like Robinhood or even even just like the crypto boom and like NFT boom. You know, we've gotten a bunch of those kind of investors now, like people that are in the crypto world that are looking at these as like alternative assets. So that's been interesting to see over the past you know, three, four months, even with that.
0: And you all now let people sell NFTs as their catalogs or as their assets to put on the platform now, right? Yeah,
1: I'm real bullish on the like just the NFT market and all that, and and I think a lot of people even now are kind of naysaying, oh, it was a fad and you know the boom hit and all that, but like I don't think that that's true. I think it's recalibrated, and I think. That you know, practical applications of NFTs are going to be what the future is. It's it's really just like a digital sort of like certificate of authenticity for certain things. So it's going to be applied to all sorts. I, I think, especially for the music business, it's right to have all sorts of applications. But I put a big uh, onus on our team to let's figure out how to sell these as NFTs because it seems so perfect to correlate with like a catalog as represented as like a digital asset. And the interesting part is. It's opened up a part of the business where a lot of times people, even though it's not true, but a lot of people we've been talking to would think to do a catalog deal, you have to sell your whole catalog and you don't have to do that. At least not with us. Like, you know, you could sell one song if you want. And with NFTs, we've done them as one song. We've done a few as as one song. And I think that's opened people's eyes where it just like it lowers the barrier of entry of like, Oh, let me get into this kind of, selling my catalog space and see how it goes. And they could dip their toe in the water with just like one song and not feel like they're fully committing their whole catalog. And it's like, what happens after that? And that's been really interesting to see. And I sort of always had that hypothesis, even just with our, our marketplace in general, that if we could break down, you know, these assets into smaller pieces, it would create more engagement. Like you see with the, the rise of like these retail investors, like a like Robinhood, people are willing to just, bet on some shit that they think is cool. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, if we could open it up and now you could come in and bid on a a piece of like a Biggie song for 500 bucks, like you might overpay it actually because it's cool to have. And it's not that much money where you're like, it's not like a $30,000 investment, which technically is still low in this world. But if you're an average person, that's not really accessible for you. So NFTs have really opened that side of it up for us. And it's been interesting to see and, and just the influx of, interest from artists that want to now turn pieces of their catalog into NFTs has been you know really exciting
0: And I think the cool thing with NFTs too, is that as a catalog, you could mix it with some type of artwork or some type of token. So then it can get past maybe more of the pure transactional aspect of royalties that may have hindered some from wanting to get involved, but it's like, no, you have your catalog and you have this little token thing so that people can then have that digital asset. And I think there's so many things that that could be done with, right? What if there's a NBA top shop, type of thing where the publishing thing is some type of visual that represents that album or represents that song i think there's so many things there
1: oh and then yeah like we're fully diving into all those possibilities and trying to think like what can we add to the NFTs that we're doing to make it even more interesting and different ways to experiment i really just wanted to like get out there as soon as possible and plant the flag that, hey, we're doing NFTs, we're doing it in a different way where you're actually earning an income from owning it and just kind of at least, you know, set the baseline there and then we're going to start adding capabilities as we go. But, uh, you know, it's really just like wanting to beat everyone to the market.
0: Right. What are some of those capabilities that you think you may add?
1: I mean, the only, you know, the, the tricky part that you sort of have to get around with some of the stuff is like, rights issues with the label you know like what does the artist themselves own and control that we could basically offer within an nft or like without having to be encumbered by a label or publisher that's going to want their piece or they're going to hold it up you know like as as much as we could stay out of that like ecosystem we we do so it's really about just figuring out like what makes sense for for the artist and what they're willing to do it could be a different menu of additional content or different exclusives with each NFT. It really depends on like what the artist wants to do, but like adding access to shows, you know what I mean? Like it's like all access pass essentially is built into the NFT or, you know, maybe they get like the first listen of a new song or, you know, there's all sorts of things like that, that could be built into it. Again, it's about collaborating with the artist a little bit on that and what they'd be willing to do. And then also not trying to get too far out of, the core of like what Rose exchange does and become like an NFT marketplace. We just want to, kind of keep it all wrapped up where it's a, it's a focused idea, but we're doing cool shit.
0: That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And how much work are you doing now on the demand side? So of course you have the marketplace set up and then it is attracting both investors and artists, but are you going out there and trying to get after some of the bigger deals? Like for instance, I know the time that we're recording this, Dame Dash is actively selling or auctioning a third of his Roy Reasonable Dow and Rockefeller Records asset off as a NFT, but that's a third of the publishing catalog, right? Like, is that an example of a type of deal there? You may have been like, oh, how can we get a piece of this over at World T-Stature? How can we get involved? Oh,
1: 100%. As soon as I saw that he was getting sued uh, for selling a piece of Reasonable Dow, I was like, shit, we we should go talk to him because, I mean, he has the right to do it. You know what I mean? Like, no matter what Jay-Z says, like, He has the right to do that. I know it was fucking up Jay-Z's launch of his little NFT that he was doing, which is fine. But that's really the only reason why they sued him. But he was not out of bounds. So once I saw that and kind of read what was underneath it all, I was like, shit, we should get in touch with Dave Dash and just try and, you know, I'd love to have reasonable doubt on the platform. But yeah, like I, because I come from the traditional side of the business from artist management and record label. And so, you know, a lot of my relationships are with artists and managers and people in the business and... That's really been one of my main just like roles is, is soliciting and, and really just telling people that we exist, you know. Cause I when I first heard about royalty exchange, I never heard of it before, you know. I mean, and, and someone who's an investor in the platform was like, hey, check out this company. What do you think? I'm thinking of investing. And I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. You know, ended up a few months later like consulting, and then that evolved into being CEO. <laughs> but my whole thing was like, listen if I never heard of it and then I got excited about it, the more people that I could tell about it, everyone's going to, it's a great model. It's a great idea. And so part of what I've been doing is just tapping into my network and and seeing who makes sense for the platform. And and we brought in, I mean, there's been a bunch of deals that have come through like that. We've had a lot of conversations, but then also to some of the, again, the higher level artists, they talk about the multiples of hypnosis and this and that and I'm like, all right, you know, it's a different idea, but you know we could compete so we'll see that the thing is i love servicing you know sort of the 99% but hey like if we could get you know some of these big splashy deals in too you know i think that's all in
0: the plan so makes sense yeah and i think too with that so much of your job is communicating and evangelizing the product making sure people know that it's out there and also i'm sure making sure that people understand of course there are risks with anything it's an investment but it's an opportunity so i know for instance Recently, there was the news of a tribe called Quest, and then them putting out their at least a portion of their catalog on the platform. And then I know there were some news reports after that about whether or not they knew about that. So I'm sure part of your job too is either just being like, "Hey, this is what happened with this. This is where we're at," and and so on.
1: Exactly. Well, I mean that yeah, that that's an example of again, like you know, we vet out any asset that comes into the platform. We you know we make sure all the contracts are there. We go through the agreements. We reach out to everybody. So if it's good to go, it's good to go. You know what I mean? Like, and we have no prior knowledge of if there's like a history with someone and people don't like each other, you know? So it's kind of like, you know, you're coming to us with just to value an asset. As long as it's all, you know, above board, we could do it. And so that's sort of what happened with the track called quest thing. I think the main issue with that was, again, people don't understand the space so much. So a lot of the, the media that just, Reported it, they want to glom onto the headline of, oh, Tribe Call Quest. But it it was clear when we sent out the press release that it was a portion of their catalog from a third party. It wasn't like we didn't do a deal with Tribe Call Quest. Like it was never positioned as that because people don't really understand how these things work and how multiple entities could have ownership of a song or a catalog. It, it just was put out kind of in a lazy way. And yeah, Ali he was caught off guard and Q-Tip were caught off guard. They were like, what the fuck? We didn't do a deal with the Exchange. Like, you know what I mean? And so they hit me up and I ended up, uh, actually went out and met with Ali and, and we talked and he gets it. It was just, it was through like an old, you know, prior settlement that they had with a, one of their early, early managers back in the day. And then he somehow, you know, negotiated a settlement to get some percentage of something from the label. And I guess he died, but he sold it. So it had been sold a couple times between them and even, the guy that brought it to us, he has no relationship with a tri Quest and they don't know him, but there's no like bad blood between them. But it was just like, I guess, the source subject of the legacy of how this royalty was acquired and then them being caught off guard and being positioned like they did a deal with us when they did it. And so it got smoothed over. You know, I explained everything like our platform to them and how it works. And they actually were like, oh, this is fucking great. Like, you know, they, they introduced me to the vice manager. We're talking about maybe doing something there. So, you know, it turned into a positive, but because there's so much, you know, it's just a confusing space. And and especially like, you know, once news stories get out there, it just you know, it turns into whatever. You have no control over what people print after that. But we vet out every deal and make sure that we actually, or whoever's bringing us the asset actually has the right to do that. So.
0: Yeah, because I remember when that news came out, there was the original headline when it was put out, and I said, well, this is owned by a third party. Like, what's going on here? I, I had the same exact thoughts, so I mean, I'm with you on that. But then in some ways, this isn't too different from the Dame Dash and Jay-Z reasonable doubt thing where they had came out and they said that, oh, you don't have the right to distribute this or this or sell this. And he's like, well... I own a third of this and I'm selling my yeah. third. So part of it is how yeah. it was worded. I think there were some things there that could have been more clear, but it's also this environment where you have Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun and big machine and all of that. And when there's ever any headline about the artist and people are trading their assets and they don't know about it or something like that, things get all haywire. So of course I know it comes with a territory with your job, but I can imagine yeah. how frustrating it can be sometimes.
1: Well, I mean, honestly, like I, it didn't really bother me much. Like, like I said, once I had a conversation with the group directly, it was all good. And they actually, you know, I, I tried to explain to them, like, look, we are a platform for the people that are getting fucked over for things, you know, like just so happens that this piece, you know, the history behind that, like, we don't know that, but overall it actually empowers the people that are involved with these songs that don't have any leverage or don't have, you know, like they're not getting the big pub deal. They're not getting the big record deal, but they, you know, they make 30,000 a year or 50,000 a year off some royalties, which is cool. Like, that's great. But like, maybe they want to buy a house. Maybe they want to buy a car. Maybe they want to invest back into their career. We're enabling them to do that. And we're actually focused on the smaller guy. So they got it after that. they actually were like, Oh, we should do something, you know? And I was like, yeah, we should. And and like, let's figure it out. Apologies. And yeah, we sent, just more clarifications out to make sure that it was it was clear. But again, we live in the world of fucking clickbait headlines, whatever. You know, like no one's gonna click on a thing that just says like royalty exchange, whatever. It's it, a trackable quest is what's gonna get the clicks. Right. You know, so I can get it, but it's just miscommunication.
0: Right, and no one wants nuance. No one wants to read nuance. People just want yeah, yeah, to...
1: <laughs> In the simple headlines. We're fucking dumb. Like, we're dumb
0: exactly, exactly. So, from an investing perspective, what are some of the sweet spots? What are some of the opportunities that you've seen on the platform that you think are more likely to be overlooked, or some things where you're like, "Hey, we're noticing a pattern here, and this is something that people should be looking a bit more at," and investors tend to miss them.
1: I mean. The investors don't tend to miss much because we have almost more demand in a lot of ways than supply. You know, so it's about getting more deal flow, which is also why we expanded, you know, since I've you know become CEO, like I, I come from the independent music world, I come from running an independent label. So I, I saw firsthand how hard or like the deals that you're kind of forced into as an independent because you need money to finance your career. And so we opened up, we did a deal with a video digital distributor, where we're funding advances for independent artists, where similar, in a similar way we look at the data, but it's a different type of idea. It's not like, you know, we're buying your catalog for 30 years or whatever. It, it, this is more of like a fixed return advance where we'll look at the data and it could be a much shorter time period as well. So the first deal we kind of tested this on, which went really well, was this, this rapper Money Move out of Atlanta, which coincidentally actually tried to sign him like three years ago, like way before anything was even happening with him, and uh, it was not an expensive deal. But again, my partners at the time, I was partners with BMG, and they didn't want to give me the money to fucking sign this guy. But it was like we should have signed this guy. And so anyway, he had a song that started blowing up, this song hitting, and he had a bu- you know a bunch of labels were hitting him up, and doing the same, like once they see something go viral or it's streaming, like now everyone's offering you money and you sign a record deal, but he wanted to bet on himself. And so I know his, the guy who runs his label and I hit him up and I was like, yeah, like we should, he was going through Vidya for distribution. I was like, we just did this deal with Vidya. We should do something with this. And so we looked at the statements. His, the song wasn't that old. So it was only about eight months of data, but we projected what it was gonna do. And, and so what we did is, the way it was set up is we would have an investor put up 400000 and they would make back five hundred seventy or something over the course of the time. Best case scenario, it would be two years they make their money back. Worst case, like five years is how we projected it. So now Money Moo would get this money and not have to give up any... He doesn't give up ownership of his masters. He's not selling royalties to any other songs. It's just this one single that he's doing a deal on. But then he could take this money... Reinvest in his career and continue to grow it without having to sign a deal, and so we ended up. I think because it went into an auction, so we ended up getting like four hundred forty-four thousand, and then the payback amount doesn't change. It's just that investors will bid up until like it's not worth it for them anymore. But yeah, he he got you know almost four hundred fifty grand against one single, and the deals he was being offered from you know every major label is like six seven hundred thousand dollars. So it's like. It's not that much more. And those are for five albums. You're signed forever. You lose all your rights. You're only getting shitty royalties, which means you're never gonna fucking make money ever in your life. So live off those advances. This we got him almost the same amount of money. He stays independent. He keeps all the money that he's making. And now he can take this. He went and shot videos, he got some more features, bigger features on his next song. You know, so it was like, all right, we're helping essentially a small business, like you know what I mean. Like we're helping you get the funding to reinvest in yourself. And if you're willing to bet on yourself. You can make way more money in ownership. And that's always what we advocate is like, you know, especially me, like me personally, is like own your shit. Like that is where the value is. You know what I mean? Like you could get money, you could leverage people to get some money for it. But if you own it and it's successful, you could always sell it at any time. And then the more successful you are, the higher multiple you'll get on that. So that enabled him to do that. And that was the first of uh those type of fixed return deals that we did. And now we're doing more of those with. Different digital distributors, I'm talking to different distributors about like, let's implement this as almost like a dashboard item in your portal where if I'm an independent artist, I could see how much of an advance can I get. You don't have to give up rights. You don't have to give up ownership of anything. It's kind of like a, you know, just a button that you, you check and then we could go through the process. But from there, opened up creator deals overall. Like, so I was like, if we could do this with digital distributors, we could do this with YouTubers. We could do this with Twitch streamers. We could do this with anyone who's making a monthly income that we could look at and kind of you know create a formula like this is how much we could get you. And so then we ended up doing one with this YouTuber, CJ So Cool. And he's a big YouTuber. He's making decent money every month. We ended up getting him $1.6 million off his YouTube ad revenue. And he's going to end up paying that back in like 18 months. And he's taking this money and like reinvesting, he's buying crazy cameras, he's doing like all sorts of new, like more elaborate kind of like sets and content, which is going to increase his fan base. And we've already seen, he's done some of that already. And his monthly revenues jumped from like, it's almost doubled. I don't know if he wants his figures out there, but it almost doubled what he was making per month since he got this money and started reinvesting in himself. So technically... He's making the same amount, but he got money from us because the way that we do that deal is we're splitting it 50-50 off the ad revenue. We want to keep, we want to keep the creators active. You know, like if, if an investor is investing, we want them to keep posting content so that the channel does well and they make their money back. And if they're not making anything every month, they're not really incentivized to, to continue posting. So we did it split 50-50. And you know, you get this money. And then when it's paid back, everything goes back to you anyway. You get hundred percent back, and so he doubled his output, and now he's making the same amount he did before the deal. But he still got one point six million dollars, and is making the same amount of money. So I'm like, this is a model. You know, we could do that for YouTubers. You know, I'm talking to different Twitch streamers, anyone that you know, we could kind of open a creator deal for. It's a huge, I think, opportunity, and investors have really like responded well to that. Like as soon as we put the CJ So Cool st- stuff up, it was. You know, we had bids right
0: away. I have seen a lot of investment activity and interest in what essentially you're doing, right? How can we find a way to bankroll the creators? How can we find a way to do it, but do it in a way that we're not binding them to a long term deal? We're not taking anything from the long term over them, but they are still able to do what they want to do and we're able to be a bit more flexible because. Yeah. I mean, it's all some aspect of disintermediation, but I feel like just with where technology is now, with where things are, a lot of these things are easier than ever. So that was a really great story. I mean, yeah, that's really impressive to just to hear like what they're able to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, again, like you said, because of technology, the data is there now, you know, and, and we, we could easily create some kind of formula or like analysis of it. And then the pain point is always money. Anyone that's Signed a bad deal is because they needed money. Like I mean, like that's the leverage that people have over you to give you a bad deal. You know, everyone that signs a record deal in the publishing deal knows that it's a shitty deal. But they're like, all right, I'm getting in advance. But even beyond the advance, it's like, oh, I'm gonna get this marketing team behind me. This team, it's the machine. Everyone talks about the machine. Really, the machine is money because you can hire all these people yourself if you have the money to do it. And also, if you hire them yourself, they're accountable to you. You could fire them if they're not doing their job. Go to a major label, they don't give a fuck about you because there's a thousand other artists that they're accountable to their boss and they don't want to get fired from their job. So it's a different dynamic. You know, if you could retain ownership, get your own money to hire your own team, it's going to be a lot more successful for you.
0: And I think for you specifically, your experience running commission, running an independent label helped inform a lot of this. You worked with a lot of artists that are big name artists now that people know, whether it's Tyga or Lil Dicky or IDK, like being able to have them and see the rise that they've been able to make, especially a lot of them not conforming necessarily to the mainstream industry, but still getting a lot of those same big time opportunities.
1: Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, it's all informed me. Like that's exactly why, like I know this firsthand, you know what I mean? Cause I was in, I was in the position of needing money and like I signed shitty deals to fucking just keep momentum going and doing all that stuff. But then, you know, I saw as a manager, you don't have any control. You know what I mean? Really? Like you have control of your team and the artist, but when it comes to the label, they're not beholden to you or anyone. They're beholden to Drake and fucking all the schedules that they have. And it's like, you fit in somewhere. Okay, cool. We'll fit you in. But you know i've seen more labels kill careers than build them. you know what i mean like honestly most of the artists that i see that break it's really because they have good management and they're you know maybe they're really smart and they're proactive themselves and you're sort of succeeding in spite of the label and like once you get to a certain point then it's easy for the label to like pour the money on and the gas and now it's it's rolling and everyone's like oh pat yourselves on the back we broke this artist but that first zero to 50 or zero to 20, zero to thirty like They don't give a fuck. They're not approving video budgets. They don't want to hear about... You want PR. They don't want to hear about radio. Like, you're on your own. And, you know, that was what frustrated me as a manager, managing these artists. And so, you know, with Little Dicky, I started out managing him. And he was doing something I thought that was so different. that, Like, even though there was label interest, I was like, they're never going to understand this. Like, I've seen this movie before. They're going to put you in the studio, tell you you don't have a single come back when you have a single, they're going to put you in with whatever fucking producers on the chart right now and then give you some cookie cutter shit that you're not going to want to do and then it's going to suck and then they're going to fucking drop you when your momentum's gone and now you're done. And so with that, based on what I was doing with Tyga, you know, Tyga was signed to catch money, Universal, but we, we operated like we were independent the whole time. Like we were putting out mixtapes on Empire, we had our own radio team, we had our own promo team, all this shit. And that was the one thing about Tyga was like, you know, he was willing... To invest in his own career, and he, and he was always willing to put into work. So, you know, he was always recording music, and he was paying for videos. He would he would put the money back into his own shit, and that enabled us to kind of operate independently, even though we were signed to a label. And so, we put up these mixtapes, and Universal would send a cease and desist, and we just ignore them and just fucking keep going. Like, and it was just like a game. It was like kind of like this is so fucking stupid because. They always want to put you in the plan, you know, and like, oh, well, let's make a rollout plan. that's like six months, eight months. And it's like, that's not how all this shit moves anymore. If you're certain artists like, yeah, that, that you could plan the next. 12. If you're Beyonce, you need your 12 month plan, especially in, in hip hop. And, and just like this, this new generation of hip hop, it's very fast moving. You know what I mean? Like six months from now, the song that you recorded is like that shit is old. Like, you know what I mean? so, so it's kind of like you need to capitalize faster and be able to move a different way. And just having that experience as a manager and being frustrated with the way that the labels just hold all the power and you you really can't move unless you're just willing to put money in yourself without making it back. And so with Dicky,
0: you know I was just like, listen,
1: I already have the team, like you know I have my own radio team, I have my own video directors, my own promo, my own PR, everything. Essentially a full label service staff that was all like third parties pieced together. I was like, let me like, I'll be the label. Like, let me go get a distribution deal. We'll put it out independently, and like, I know how to break this shit. And we did it, and it worked. And so from there, I just shifted all my focus into being a label, and you know, signed Made in Tokyo, IDK, all you know, all the artists that came after that. And it was always more of like my deals were always kind of structured to be more of like a partnership. You know, what I mean, there was never like a royalty or anything like that. It was like net profit splits, like transparent, like very short deals and just kind of like, I don't know. I, I always believed in, cause I come from being an artist back in the day. So it's like, I always wanted to be fair. Like, this is your life. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm trying to help you, but I could get another artist tomorrow. You can't get another career. So like, I wanted to be fair and I want you to be in it with me. I, you know, like you got that skin in the game. And so, yeah, like that all informed me where you need to own your shit. Like even as my being a label, I, I got a distribution deal and put all my own money into building it and all that stuff. But then, you know, did some partnerships where I needed funding to scale, but I never gave up equity. And that ended up working out in the end when I went to sell my label. I owned the label so I could sell it. You know, if I if I would have been beholden to, you know, Universal or, someone, or Sony, I might not have been able to move that much. And so, you know, ownership has always been key. And that was just the next step in the evolution of like royalty exchanges, just advocating for... Like artists, like you are a business. Like this is a business that you're in. It's the music business. A lot of artists forget the business side of it. And that's cool if you want to be an artist and just be an artist. But have a team that understands the business and like build this shit around you. You know what I mean? And you're creating valuable IP that you should be able to make money off. And that's like the whole mission behind the Royalty Exchange. You know, why I got involved. Where it's like, let's empower these artists where they don't have to sign these shitty deals. Because if we could get them the money they want... They could hire everyone they need and then own all their shit.
0: Was it tough to sell the label and let that part go and do what you're doing now, obviously? Because, I mean, there's clearly a connection and an evolution with what you're doing and the skills are so relatable, but yourself, were an artist. You've worked so closely with these artists as well and working directly with them, of course, is a very different type of thing than running a company and you clearly still have the skill sets and the ability. Was it tough at all?
1: From like an um, emotional standpoint? Yeah. Not really. Like I was never that connected to like a brand in particular. Like I always see, you know, because maybe that also comes from like management. It was never about me. It was more about like the artists. And, and like I always kind of play the background. And so, you know, even as a label, like you have a name of a label, but it wasn't the, like I wasn't like, oh, this brand is my baby. Like, yeah, it was like I was dope. Like I love it. But I feel like I could start a label tomorrow and in, in a couple of years have it going crazy and sell it again. Like, you know what I mean? So it's more about a belief in myself that I have the skill set to identify talent and great talent and all that, you know? So, under what moniker it is, it doesn't really matter to me.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. And I think having that mentality is right. It's like, you're obviously close to the industry. You see how things evolve. What you may have done a few years ago with commission would be very different than if you were to ever start one in the future. But I think so many of the principles are going to stay the same, like understanding how the industry works from your perspective, like that stuff isn't going to change. There may be small evolutions here or there, but the core of it, I think, is still pretty stable.
1: Yeah it's not like a product, you know what I mean? It's like if I created fucking Apple, yeah, like, all right, you're not going to make another Apple, but you know, essentially it's a service business and I know how to do the service so I could do it under whatever label it is, you know?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, and this is great. I mean, I feel like we covered it all. We got a great breakdown on royalty exchange. Talked a little bit about your career as well and everything leading up to this point too. But before we let you go, anything else that you want to make sure the travel audience knows about, or anything else you want to plug?
1: No, I'm not, I'm not a plug guy. Like, I, know, <laughs> like, I feel like they, they got the info here. You know, go check out royalty exchange if you're an artist or a manager that you know is looking to uh, potentially get some money for whatever you wanna you know, invest into your own career or put in your pocket, we're here. So check out Royalty Exchange and uh, that's it, man. I just appreciate you taking the time. And like I said, I'm a big fan of what you do and your mind and how you think about the business. So this is an honor for me.
0: Thanks, man, I appreciate that, I appreciate that. This is fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend.